Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. It's definitely still summer here, but it did finally rain, uh, so now it's a steamy hot instead of just a hot hot, and I'm not sure that's better, <laughs> except that we really needed some rain. Anyway, I hope that whatever the weather is, wherever and whenever you are, that you're surviving it or thriving. That would be even better. I really hope that you're thriving. Today, we have another play by Terence, Hutan Timoru Menus, or The Self-Tormentor. It is based on a play uh, by Menander, by the same name, and that's about all we know about the Menander version. <laughs> Terence, as we've already seen, is known for taking liberties with his adaptations, so we really don't know how much is original to Menander and how much is Terence. I am working from the Palmer Bovey translation from the 1970s, and Bovey suggests that the doubling of the plot that we see is all Terence. Um, a little bit like Shakespeare's doubling of the twins in Comedy of Errors, which uh, we already noted when we covered Plautus, is based on Plautus's Menechmi. Anyway, Yuton Timoro Menos is the subject of this episode. It premiered in 163 BCE, and as we'll see in the prologue, it definitely is a mid-career work by Terence. This is a confusing one, in part because some of the names are so similar uh, to what we've read before, and also because we have two fathers and two sons and two objects of the son's affections. Like I said, this doubling of the plot is possibly all Terence and might not have been in the original Menander version. Uh, plus, we have the usual assortment of slaves, some of whom are more clever than others. Father number one is Menademos. His son is Clinia, and Clinia is in love with Antiphila. Dromo is their family slave. Father number two is Cremes. His son is Clitipho, and Clitipho is in love with Bacchus. Cremes' wife is Sostrada, and their family slave is Cyrus. Sostrada also has a maid named Canthera, and Bacchus's maid is Phrygia. The play is set in the countryside. Menedemus and Cremes are neighbors, and their sons have been friends since childhood. So we have the usual upstage exits to their respective houses, but the right and left exits aren't as clearly defined as when we're in the typical urban setting of a Roman comedy. Since the background of the plot is provided in the first scene, I think I will leave this here. So let's take a short break before diving in. The play opens with another delightful Terence prologue that has little to do with this exact play and more to do with Terence's relationship with his critics. You know how there are some movies that are really popular but they never win awards? And does this mean that those movies aren't good? Well, that's basically the point of this prologue. Well, that and to say that Terence is a good writer, so you should enjoy this play. Cremes and Menedemos enter, and we get the backstory from them because it definitely didn't come from the prologue. 
Creamy's comments on how hard Menedemus works, and Menedemus explains. He was once rich and lived in the city, but his son fell for a girl who was quite below his station, and this was completely unacceptable. Menedemus did not treat his son well. And since Menedemus wouldn't give him the money for marriage, his son ran off to become a mercenary in Asia so that he could earn his own fortune. And he hasn't seen his son since. And he misses him and wishes he'd behaved differently. So Menedemus sold all of his things in the city and bought this farm. And now he lives here and works the farm himself in some sort of penance over the loss of his son. Creamies invites Menedemus over for the Feast of Dionysus, but Menedemus refuses. If his son is off working, then so should he. Menedemus exits. Clitifo enters. Creamies tells Clitifo about Menedemus' son. Clitifo says that the son isn't missing. He just met him getting off the ship. But Clinia doesn't want to see his father. He hasn't forgotten what led to his departure, and he fears how Menedemus will respond to his return. Creamies agrees not to tell Menedemus yet, and he exits to check on the preparations for the feast. Clitifo soliloquizes about a father's expectations. Clinia enters. He's worried that Antiphila, the girl he left behind when he went off to earn his fortune, isn't still waiting for him. Cyrus and Romo enter, followed by a whole train of maids carrying all of Antiphila's jewels and clothes, much to his surprise because, as you'll recall, she was basically broke when he left. It turns out that Antifala's stepmother has died and left her her fortune. Clitivo explains the whole story. It takes a few pages. <laughs> Cyrus then explains that Antifala was so excited to learn that Clinia is home that she dropped everything to come and see him. Oh, and Bacchus is here too, much to Clitivo's chagrin. There's no way his father is going to approve of his courtesan girlfriend, especially since he owes her about $1,000. But Cyrus, of course, being our clever slave, has a plan. They'll pretend that Bacchus is Clinia's girlfriend and Antiphila is her mate. Menedemus will be so pleased to have his son home that he won't care about Bacchus's demands. Again, she wants $1,000. After some convincing, everyone agrees to the plan and Clitifo and Dromo exit. Bacchus and Antiphila enter. Bacchus counsels Antiphila not to rely on her looks because she may be young and beautiful now, but that won't last. But Antiphila, of course, is convinced that she has secured Clinia's heart and doesn't need to be as mercenary as the older woman. Clinia is, of course, overjoyed to see Antiphila and vice versa, and they all exit into Creamies' house. The next scene starts the following morning. Creamies enters and debates whether or not to let Menedemus know that Clinia is home. Menedemus enters before Creamies has a chance to knock. Creamies shares the good news that Clinia is home and the bad news that his new girlfriend is happily spending all his money. Because again, Creamies thinks that Bacchus is Clinia's girlfriend. Confused yet? Menedemus doesn't care, as Cyrus anticipated. He'd happily give up his fortune if it means having his son back. Creamies assures Menedemus that it won't be necessary. Cyrus will come up with a plan. Menedemus exits. Cyrus enters. He happily agrees to help Creamies because it fits quite perfectly with the plan he's already concocted to help Clitifo. Creamies exits into his house but returns quickly, dragging Clitifo behind him. He's caught Clitifo canoodling with Bacchus, who is supposed to be Clinia's girlfriend. This leads to Clitifo getting berated by both Creamies and Cyrus. 
Eventually, Creamy sends his son to go for a long walk to think about what he's done, and Clitifo exits. Cyrus then explains his plan to Creamy's. He weaves the tale about how Antifala came to be Bacchus's maid, and how Bacchus is now insisting that Clinia pay off the debt Antifala owes before he can have her. Cyrus will go to Menademus to get the money. Creamy's doesn't think this will work, but Cyrus insists that that's not a problem. Before they get a chance to discuss further, Sostrata and Canthara enter. Sostrata is showing Canthara a ring. And Tifla decided to take a bath, and she gave her jewelry to Sostrata, the mistress of the house, for safekeeping while she did that. One thing to remember is that you generally didn't bathe at home, and if you left your things in the lockers at the bathhouse, they were likely to be stolen because they weren't really, you know, lockers that could be locked. So it makes sense that she would leave her jewelry with Sostrata to go off to take a bath. Now here's the thing. Sostrata recognizes the ring as the one belonging to her long-lost daughter. Now, Creamy's hadn't wanted a daughter and told Sostrata to take care of it, so Sostrata did what you do and gave the baby to a servant to expose, but not before tucking this ring into the swaddling clothes. Clearly, the baby survived, and now she's home! Creamy's confesses that even though he didn't want a daughter back then, he's happy to have a daughter now. Creamy's Sostrata and Canthara exit. Cyrus soliloquizes about how this puts a wrench in the works. Clinia enters. He's overjoyed that Antiphila turns out to be the daughter of a wealthy family because now his father can't object to their marriage. Cyrus revises his plan and tells Clinia to claim that Antiphila is his girlfriend and to announce that Bacchus is the real girl- girlfriend of Clitifo. And then have Menademus tell Creamies. Cyrus is betting on Creamies not believing his neighbor. Bacchus and Phrygia enter. Bacchus speaks loudly to assure that Cyrus and Clinia can overhear. Cyrus may have a plan, but Bacchus has her own mind and will do whatever she can to milk as much money out of Cyrus as possible. Eventually, Cyrus steps forward. He insists that she'll get her money. She just needs to move into Menademus's house. She and Phrygia exit. He calls for Dromo, who enters. Cyrus instructs Dromo to take all of Bacchus's things to Menademus's house. Dromo exits. Creamy's enters and comments about how poor Menademus is now stuck with Bacchus. Cyrus explains that this is all part of his plot, which it actually is, but Creamy's doesn't know that the plot Cyrus has concocted is the truth of what he's actually doing. So Creamy's is relieved that Menademus really won't be swindled, even though that's exactly what's happening. Cyrus then explains that Clinia wants to marry Antiphila, and it would be great uh, for this plot if Creamies would just offer a dowry for his daughter and money for his son to pay off Bacchus. Clinia agrees and exits to fetch the money. Clitivo enters, returned from his walk, which wasn't tiring, but which he has tired of. I love that line. He accuses Cyrus of messing up the plan. Cyrus turns right back around and reminds Clitifo that it was his canoodling with Bacchus that started the problems. Then he tells Clitifo that he'll have the money for Bacchus soon and from Creamies at that. Cyrus is thrilled. Creamies enters with the money. Cyrus prompts Clitifo through the subsequent conversation and Clitifo and Cyrus exit. 
Menedema centers. And Cremes and Menedemus arrange the marriage between Clinia and Antiphila, thinking that this is all part of the ruse that Cyrus has come up with to pay off Bacchus. Menedemus exits to get Clinia ready for the wedding and to tell Clitipho to come speak to his father. Clitipho and Cyrus enter. Cremes tells Clitipho that he's been cut off. Cremes has decided to put all his money towards Antiphila's dowry. Cremes exits. Clitipho and Cyrus bemoan the loss of their money and argue over who now has it worse, the slave or the son. Clitipho exits to ask his mother for help, and Cyrus exits before he gets into any more trouble. Sostrada and Cremes enter. Sostrada counsels her husband not to go too far in his punishment of Clitipho, lest he lose his son the same way Menedemus lost his. They bicker. Clitipho enters and begs to be restored to his parents' good graces. They all bicker. Menedemus enters and intercedes on Clitipho's behalf. Cremes agrees on one condition, or two, depending on how you count. Clitipho must give up Bacchus and marry a nice Roman, I, I mean Greek, girl. Sostrada knows the perfect candidate. The daughter of their neighbor, Freckleface Haynes. Clitipho turns up his nose at her. He counters with the daughter of another friend. His parents agree. Clitipho asks Cremes to forgive Cyrus, and Cremes agrees to that too. The actor who delivered the prologue steps back on stage and tells the audience that now is the time to applaud, and the play ends. I swear that this play isn't that confusing when you're reading it, but it is really hard to explain. I think the most confusing part of trying to explain this plot is that Menedemus and Cremes think that they are going along with Cyrus's ruse when everything he has told them is true. So we have the usual scheming of the clever slave, but when everything goes sideways for Cyrus, he just turns into the skid and confesses to everything in such a way that Menedemus and Cremes think that he's making it up that he's not telling them telling them the truth he says exactly what he's going to do and then he does it and they think that it's okay spoiler alert it's like the sting um it's it's delightful and and it really is is funny but it is really hard to explain what is happening in this play um And I mean, just even trying to explain why it's confusing to explain is confusing. But if you do read it, or if you are able to watch a performance of it, I don't think it's any more confusing than any other Roman comedy, and in some ways might be slightly less confusing than some Roman comedies. Um, Anyway, the thing that struck me about this play is how mercenary it is, literally and figuratively. I glossed a little bit over Menedemus's story in Act 1, in that first scene when he gives us the background, his his history, and how he had this falling out with Clinia. Um, so Menedemus had earned his fortune by working as a mercenary. And that's what gives Clinia the idea to go and become a mercenary himself so that he can earn his own fortune. Um, but but then as I was reading, and Bacchus, 
the way she's described, and I used the word mercenary when I when I wrote my summary because it, Terrence doesn't call her a mercenary, but that is a great description of of how her actions are perceived. Um, and that's when it struck me that this is kind of a theme within this play. Um, that it's about her mercenary actions and how they they lead to all of this confusion over who is whose girlfriend and how is she going to get the money that she's not going to leave until she gets paid. Um, so she's mercenary in her actions, but again, that's how that's how the men describe her business practices which of course brings gender into the discussion I mean Cyrus is scheming but he's not described the same way as Bacchus and neither of them are you know of a status the same status as a freeborn citizen right Cyrus is a slave and Bacchus is a prostitute Um, she is a courtesan she is not a freeborn woman either she may have independence but but she's not it's not like she can vote right um and and so they're of a similar status especially because she's a woman and that totally messes with things um but but cyrus doesn't merit the same sort of descriptions, even though his goal is exactly the same as hers, getting money for Bacchus. He's clever for trying to get the money, and she's mercenary for asking for it. While I'm on the topic of gender, we only hear from a couple of women in this play. We hear from Bacchus, the mercenary courtesan, and we hear from Sostrada, the overbearing wife. The good young women who end up as brides at the end of the play are nearly silent or completely non-existent even to our eyes because a good Roman girl stays in her house and doesn't talk to strangers. So what do you think about the families that we see in Huton Tomorrow Menos? Pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as Triumvir Clio. That URL is in the show notes too. In the next episode, we'll go over book two of Virgil's Georgics. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.